Hello, and welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your co-host, Amanda Bullock. This week's episode features a conversation from the 2022 Portland Book Festival. This year's Portland Book Festival is on Saturday, November 4th, 2023. We're live and all in person in downtown Portland with over 100 authors, kids events, a book fair, food trucks, and more. Information at pdxbookfest.org. We hope to see you there. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we are featuring multi-genre best-selling poet and the author of 38 books, Kwame Alexander, who discusses his memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, with Gregory Gorday the James Beard award-winning chef of Portland's Con and author of the cookbook, Everyone's Table. Kwame Alexander is best known for his children's books, including The Door of No Return and The Crossover, which was recently made into a TV series on Disney+. Last month, he published a memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. Alexander said that he started the book as love poems for his daughters, not knowing it would become the memoir and a mix of poetry, prose, recipes, and more as he explored his past and his present. The conversation is remarkably open and honest as Alexander shares stories ranging from learning to cook his mother's fried chicken, which was especially challenging given he was living in apparently buttermilkless London, uh, in order to connect not only with his late mother, but with his daughter. Growing up with a strict, book-loving father, and how that affected his relationship to books and literature, and actively working to become a better father, partner, and friend by pushing himself to be more vulnerable with the people in his life. Although the word father is in the title, the book and the conversation touch on all kinds of friend and family relationships beyond father-child. Let's join our interviewer, Gregory Gorday, in conversation with Kwame Alexander at Powell's Bookstore. Let's get right into it. This, I love your book. <laughs> uh, it's just so well written. It's so beautiful. Um, and it's just so easy to read. I think it just touches on so many themes that I am not a father, but it touches on so many life themes and it kind of traces me back to my upbringing and my relationship with my parents and my relationship with my siblings and how I envision my relationship with my nieces because I don't have children either. I think, let's just ask, you're a prolific writer, <laughs> award-winning. You've, you've written so many different topics. Why did you think it was time to write a memoir? I didn't think it was time to write a memoir. <laughs> I, I had no idea I was writing a memoir. Mm. I, I, I set out to write some love poems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wanted to write about love in a way that my two daughters would sort of begin to understand how their dad loves, how he, how he was loved. My mom passed away in 2017. I never really had any real conversations with my dad. And I found myself in the past few years wanting to know, like, why they never held hands, why I never saw them hold hands, my mom and dad, or why I never saw them kiss. I had some questions for them, and I thought that perhaps one day my daughters might have questions for me 
And so I said, well, let me write about how their dad loves, how, how passionate he is. And then as, over the course of writing them, I started seeing there was a story developing. And so I said, well, let me write a prose piece to give some context to these poems. And then my editor was like, why don't you write another prose piece? Mm. <laughs> and she said that like seven times. Mm. It's like, mm. something's going mm. on here. Mm. And one of the pieces was about my mom. And in 2019, I moved to London to become the innovator in residence at the American School in London. And when we got there, I said, I'm going to learn how to cook. And I'm going to learn how to cook because I want to get closer to my mother, who had passed away two years prior. And you know how they say when you lose someone you loved or who, lo who you love, you, you get a sign from them at some point, or you, you're able to talk to them, you know, that kind of thing. And I, in two years, I hadn't heard anything from my mother. I was like, where is this woman? Where's my sign? And I said, well, maybe I got to do something. So I said, I'm going to teach myself how to cook the meal that she cooked, which was like the meal I remember the most, which was fried chicken. And so I started teaching myself how to cook. It took about 12 times. They don't have buttermilk in London. Really? Nah, okay. in England. <clears throat> so, clotted cream? Yeah, right. So I tried to use clotted cream. I was like, that's not going to work for the fried chicken. So my friend Jacqueline Woodson, she said, Kwame, you should um, get a cup of milk and put, squeeze a teaspoon of lemon in it and let it set for 15 minutes. Buttermilk. I was like, wow! Blew my mind. So I started teaching myself how to make her fried chicken. My daughter began to love it. And I saw what I realized is that the relationship that my, my kid and I were having over the dinner table mm -hmm. was the same one I had with my mother. And so I was able to sort of have this generational, precious you know, memory and engagement that just... So the, the, the short of it is, so I ended up including recipes and then it just sort of formed into this memoir. Had I knew that I was writing a memoir, I don't think I would have done it. Mm. It seems like your mother's cooking was kind of a big part of your upbringing, and it seems like potentially it took a little bit of time for you to have that connection with your family. Did you, after that one moment of making that fried chicken and being in the pandemic, did you continue to cook with your girls, with your daughters, and how did that develop? Oh yeah, and it was on. I was making fish chowder. Um, I tried making scones. It ain't work out too well. You know, I made spinach lasagna. I made red red. So I've been to Ghana 11 times. Mm -hmm. So I made red red, which is like this bean stew with a palm mm -hmm. oil base. I made jollof rice. I made, I like, I started cooking. I got Marcus's cookbook. Mm -hmm. I got Alexander. I got all these mm -hmm. cookbooks, right? I'm, I'm teaching myself how to cook. Mm -hmm. And I love being in the kitchen. Every uh, first Sunday, I have this thing at my house called Jubilee. And I invite friends and family over. And you, if you have kids, you come over so all the kids can sort of hang out and spend time together. And I cook. I cook for everybody. And it's anywhere from 15 to 30 people. I love it. Um, you, I'm sitting here saying I love cooking to a chef. <laughs> what am I doing? Like, no, but what am I? This makes and no not, sense. Not everyone loves to cook, though, you know. And like, not everyone has memories of cooking with their family. It's, it's just it's a beautiful thing, but not everyone has that opportunity right. and that privilege. So, okay, you start the book with a poem by uh, Jay California Cooper, and to me, it's it's a poem about love coming into your life, and it's 
maybe unwanted. It's, it's, it's maybe like tricky to manage, but you, you, you talk about how it's, it's, you miss it when it's gone. Why did you feel opening the book and setting the tone of this work with that poem was fitting? So in 2017, when my mother passed away, a year after that, sort of my marriage began to fall apart. Well, not fall apart. We began to see the cracks in it. And then my oldest daughter, uh, my firstborn, she and I had this really big argument and it exploded into something that I never would have imagined possible. And at the same time, I'm at the top of the New York Times bestseller. I'm selling a million books. I got a Disney Plus TV show. And so the career is booming. A million books. A million books. Wow. And I can't sleep at night. And I find myself being in this space of not being happy. Mm. And I just began to not understand or not feel loved and not feel like, I'm, like, like I want to love and not knowing how to love because apparently it's not working out because I'm dealing with all this loss, mm-hmm. whether it's death, divorce, which is like a slow death, estrangement like I feel like I'm dealing with all this loss and I thought all this time Gregory I'm a I love love mm-hmm. like I always thought I was a lover of love and yet it's gone and I said well I gotta how am I gonna find it again what have I been doing wrong mm-hmm. what do I need to do right and and so I wrote I started writing as a way to begin to acknowledge and understand, try to understand what was going on in my life so that I could make it better. You often talk about how this is not a traditional memoir by any means. And, you know, quickly flipping through the book, you can see it's it's poetry. um, It's sprinkled with recipes. It's sprinkled with, you know, just seemingly just conversations with your daughters that haven't recorded. But at the same time, it, it takes you through your life and through some of your ups and downs in such a very clear way. Why did you feel this was the best format for these experiences and, and having them all in one place? You know, what was the feeling like after? I mean, truthfully, I had no idea whether it was going to work or not. You know, this book was sort of me experimenting with a new meal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Trying out a new recipe mm-hmm. for how to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. And the way I was raised was to be very confident in, in myself. Like my parents, like the quote I had to repeat was, I am the greatest. Not because I am better than anyone, but because no one is better than me. Like, I went through life thinking that I am the guy. That's how my parents raised me. So I've always thought that when I embark on something, it's going to, I think it's going to work, or at least I believe I can will it to work. So I had a certain level of confidence that it would work for me. Whether it was going to work for everyone else, I wasn't sure, but I knew I had a better chance of it working for the, for the reader if indeed it worked for me. I would, is it the same way with, with when you're preparing a meal, if you got to like it? Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, you got to like it. <laughs> right. You got to yeah. love it. Yeah. Before you give it out to the world. Before you yeah. give it out to the world. It's the yeah. same way with this. Yeah. And so I loved it, and I hoped that when it was read, that you all would feel some modicum of that 
you know, feeling that I had. Did I answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk about your mother a little more and just her influence. You speak of how she read you fables and fiction after dinner, and at times uh, when you were uncomfortable, maybe she told you funny stories or, or cliffhangers, and you go on to write, you, you fell in love with her because of this. And clearly, you know, as the prolific writer that you are, you've written 39 books, you, you speak so candidly and openly about your family, you've gone to um, create literary programs across the world, you're an exit producer, how much did that your mother influence you in terms of being a writer and being a creative? I appreciate the question so much because this is the, um, the third stop on the book tour. And it, it always starts out with my dad. Mm. Like, that's where the questions go. Mm. And I remember when my mother was alive, she would say, why don't you write poems about me? You're always <laughs> writing about your father. And I would tell her, we only write about the people who bring us to grief, <laughs> right? And so I, didn't, I never really wrote about her. Mm. And the irony is now I'm writing about her in this moment of dealing with this. But with my dad, literature and books and words were chores. They were punishment. It was, his whole life revolved around books. He was an extremely bookish person. We got into a car. You didn't even ask me about my dad, but here I am talking about him. <laughs> Every Thanksgiving as a child, we would drive from Virginia Beach to New York City. We go to New York City to, to attend a book fair that my father sponsored each Friday after Thanksgiving. And my siblings and I worked the book fair. We stood behind the table and sold the books. That was our job. And so this particular Thanksgiving, we're driving up Thursday morning because Thursday night, our Thanksgiving dinner is Chinese food mm -hmm. at Hunan Park restaurant on 93rd in Columbus. Mm -hmm. I always ordered the shrimp with lobster sauce. I remember it to this day. We're on the New Jersey Turnpike and everyone in the car falls asleep, including my father. And the car flips over and we land on, on the cars upside down, and my dad checks in with everyone and says to make sure everyone's okay, and everyone says they're okay. And when he gets to me, my response is, damn. To which he says, watch your words. I'm like, huh? And then he proceeds to tell me to get outside, to crawl out the car and get the books that it strewed out of the trunk onto the turnpike and put them back in the, in the crates. And I'm thinking, we just had this tragic accident. There are semis and cars backed up behind us and you are focused on the books. So books had this very sort of, it was a painful experience for me mm -hmm. with books. With my mother, my mother read to us to me, as a three-year-old, Langston Hughes. She read Spent a Soft Black Song by Nikki Giovanni. She read Lucille Clifton. And my favorite book was Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss. So as a three-year-old, I would scream the book. I'd scream it. Fox, socks, knocks, box. Fox and socks, socks and box. Like, I loved that. That was my thing. And so there was one day at, at, at I went to a, uh, a preschool development center called Riverside. It was in a church 
on the Upper West Side, a church called Riverside that John D. Rockefeller built. Mm -hmm. So I went to this, this preschool. And so one day, at the end of school, I built a house out of these wooden blocks. And this kid who didn't like me came and kicked over my blocks. And I was really mad because I wanted to show my mother the blocks. And so I walked up to him and I screamed at the top of my lungs. Those were my blocks that you flipped. Lest you want a quick payback, better fix my quick block stack. <laughs> and he started crying. <laughs> and when my mother came to school, the teachers were like, Mrs. Alexander, we have a problem. Your son Kwame is arrogant. <laughs> he intimidates all the kids with his words. And my mother looked at the teacher and said, thank you. <laughs> we teach him to use his words. I, I got, like, I feel like my parents, they created a writer. Mm -hmm. They created a lover of words. Mm -hmm. And so I think my mom showed me that books could be reward, books could be fun, words could be cool. Like, she was that balance to my dad. I've tried to sort of, you know, mesh or fuse that upbringing, that love of words from, from the both of them. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite lines is, uh, she helped me to love each day with words, and that gave me courage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the courage to, to lift my voice, mm. to speak my mind even when it's hard mm. and because I've written 38 books and most of those books I've made up stories. Mm. This is the first book where I've had, I couldn't make it up. Mm. I had to tell my story and it's definitely been difficult, challenging to not only write about it, but just to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we live in a culture where we're encouraged to kind of deal with our past traumas to be better people today. Kind of digging into your past and kind of like looking back at those traumas, did some memories come up that you hadn't thought about in a long time? Was it there a cathartic response to kind of being able to go back and, and put it on paper for the first time? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> like it, it, it just, there was so, there's just so many moments one of the things I've discovered writing this book is how, how much I need to be more open. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that I was a very open person, like emotionally. Again, because I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. Anise knows we're poets, you know, <laughs> and we, we share, we're vulnerable. And so I've always thought I was that guy. I have two really good friends, Marshall and Mike, and we've known each other for 30 years. And over the past 20 years, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with them. Sometimes I'll see they're hanging out, going to the movies, they'll post on social, or they're visiting this beach. And I'm like, how do they have time for that? I'm working. And I just, I've been out building this career. That's been my focus, and I've missed them, but again, I'm busy. I don't have time for all the stuff. And so about two months ago, I said, fellas, let's, 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 go, let's, go, let's go on a vacation together and just hang out. And they were like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like, you want to do that? I was like, no, no. I'm serious, and, and I'll pay for it. And they were like, okay. 
So they, they, bought, they bought it. And so we went to Puerto Rico f- for four days. And one night we're having drinks and eating dinner. And I just look at him and I say, fellas, have I been open with y'all? Have I been vulnerable? Have I, have I, do y'all think there's, like, is it possible I've had an emotional wall up? Mm. And they looked at me and they both laughed and they were like, dude, you've always been surface. Mm. And it just, it just, it just hurt. Mm. It hurt that they said it and it hurt that that was the case, that all these years I'm thinking I've been vulnerable, but I've been on the page. Mm. And I've been, for lack of a better way to say it, I've been sort of hiding behind the metaphor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so writing this book, again, I don't even know if I'm answering the question, but (laughs) um, writing this book forced me to come out of hiding and recognize some of those things about my past that have not served me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that I need to work on and change in order to be this better man that I know I can be. Mm. You go into one of my questions, you know, we live in a very challenging world that demands that we're strong, you know, especially for people of color. How do you feel you kind of diving into this vulnerability? Um, What kind of message do you want people to take away from that? Any librarians or teachers here? It's a bunch of y'all, I know. (laughs) So when I was writing this book, and when I realized what I was writing, and I I said to myself, oh my goodness, I hope these librarians and teachers still buy my children's books. (laughs) When they they really begin to see, we write children's books, but we we still people. We like still out here dealing with stuff, you know? And so I worry, mm-hmm. how, how are people going to respond to me opening up about what is definitely not a kid's book, about you know, opening up about my experiences? So that was one thing that I, 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 wor- I wondered and worried about. And then I think last week on, on Instagram, I saw this librarian, and she posted this review of the book. And it was just great. It was glorious. I was like, yes. And then she got to this one part of the review and she was like, and he talks about his sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I, I know that I learned from this writing, because the short of it is I, have, I don't have a thing that I want readers to get or to take from it. I do remember that Back in February, I woke up with a panic attack and called my editor, Judy Klein, and said, you got to pull this book. You cannot publish this book. I'm putting too much of myself out there. And I remember her telling me that part of the reason we, we write memoir is so that we can have this shared connection, this community with others who may be dealing with similar things or dealing with their own things mm-hmm. that, that your writing may offer something to them. And so I don't know what that is. My hope is that there is something. 
the last thing is that I know what I learned from this, what I gathered, another thing I gathered from this is the idea of extending grace. And I give, I give, I've given my dad a hard time when I look back on how I was raised. I give him a hard time. You wouldn't play ping pong with me. We didn't go to the baseball game. It was always read this book and study the dictionary. And I give him a hard time about stuff. And of course, now I've written 39 books, so there is that. But in 10 years, when my daughters look back on my fatherhood, I'm sure my youngest kid is going to be like, and he was always traveling. He was always out trying to change the world one word at a time. But what about me at home? Like right now, she's, she's 3,000 miles away. And so I realized I got to extend my dad some more grace. And I realized that because my hope is that my kids will extend me some grace. That's my hope and my prayer. I mean, honestly, I would use graceful as a word to describe this book. And as introspective as it is, I do believe it's extremely inspiring um, because it really tells us to just get out there and kind of figure it out and like not be scared to dive into maybe some things in the past um, and just keep putting one foot forward. Um, one of the things I like about the book is like, it doesn't seem like there's an ending, like there isn't like a, a close to it. It's like, we're still on this journey with you because life is far from over at any point and we're still on this journey and you, you, you finish the book and you're not, it's not, there's nothing that ends because we're all still here. And I, I think I love that part about it. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I'm not a grown man, I'm a growing man. <laughs> and I'm still figuring this stuff out. Some of the things I just haven't figured out yet. Mm -hmm. I, I do notice that I've started making some serious, significant changes in the way I move through the world. One of the reasons why I haven't had difficult and hard conversations is because I'm afraid of, I've been afraid of how people are going to feel or react to it. And I remember my therapist saying these words that have stuck with me. She said, Kwame, people will survive your truth. Mm -hmm. And so once I heard that, I said, are you sure? She's like, yeah. And so I began having these hard conversations with people that I've been putting off with friends, with family, with colleagues, with employees. And I was on overdrive, y'all. My therapist was like, slow down. <laughs> you don't have to do it all next week. <laughs> but like, you know, once I get going, it's like, yeah, I don't, I wanna, I, I don't wanna stop. I had a question. And so you moved to London in 2019. And then we know 2020 hits, and you talk about the racial pandemic. And as someone who grew up in very culturally aware upbringing, very in touch with your heritage, a lot of your work touches on you know, black studies, how did it feel to be so removed from kind of what was happening in America racially? It felt great mm. to not be here. Mm. I mean, London, England wasn't that much better, mm -hmm. but you know, it felt like it was because I understood why Baldwin and Josephine mm -hmm. Baker mm -hmm. and Richard Wright, why all these folks moved to Europe. Mm -hmm. I got it. Mm -hmm. My first week in London, um, I was working on a book 
about Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would walk to this cafe called Raul's in Maida Vale. And I would sit there and order my egg white omelet, have my, my Earl Grey tea, and write every day. And one day I'm walking home and, and we're on this, this cobblestone road and, and there's this like five feet, five foot tall white woman who's like 10 steps in front of me. And I start feeling that thing that black men feel when they're in an elevator with the white woman or they're on the same side of the street with the white woman. Do y'all know that thing I'm talking about? Like everybody knows that feeling. I start feeling that. And so I start slowing down because I'm afraid for her. Like why am I afraid for her? This racism thing, it can take over you. It can, it can immerse you. You've been immersed in it so long that it consumes you. And so I'm slowing down because I don't want to, whatever it is, I don't want it to happen. And so she's, she's short. I'm six foot four, so even I'm walking slower, but I'm still catching up to her. And I'm starting to feel a little tense. And finally, I get up to her. And she's right here, and I'm walking. My heart's beating fast. Because of Trayvon, because of Emmett, because of Walter, because of Terrence, I'm just... I'm in that moment and I'm just feeling it. And she looks over at me and she says, and this is when I knew, okay, I'm in a different place. Oh, hello. <laughs> and she's just smiling. She just starts carrying on a conversation. Oh, Jerry. And she just walks on. And it's just, a, and like this weight mm. of what America says your blackness is, is gone. Mm. And I don't have it for the next three years I'm in London. Mm -hmm. And I write some of the best things I've mm -hmm. ever written. And I feel for the first time in my life like an American. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've never felt in America. And it's the most beautiful thing. The title of the book, 10 Reasons Why Fathers Cry at Night. It's extremely, really straightforward, <laughs> you know? Um, do you want to elaborate a little bit? So two daughters. Yeah. One is uh, 14 and the other is 31. When the 31-year-old was 15, she said she wanted to date. And I remember thinking, oh, hell no. That is not going to happen on my watch. And I remember my wife saying, Kwame, you know, just go write a poem or something. <laughs> like, just get, get over it. And so I did. Ten reasons why fathers cry at night. One, because 15-year-olds don't like park swings or long walks anymore unless you're in the mall. Two, because holding her hand is forbidden and kisses are lethal. Three, because school was fine, her day was fine, and yes, she's fine, so why is she weeping? Four, because you want to help, but you can't read minds. Five, because she's in love and that's cute until you find his note asking her to prove it. Six, because she didn't prove it. Seven, because next week she's in love again and this time it's real. She says her heart is heavy. 
Eight, because she yearns to take long walks in the park with him. Nine, because you remember the myriad woes and wonders of spring desire. And ten, because with trepidation and thrill, you watch your teenage daughter who suddenly wants to swing all by herself. And I, I slid the poem under her door. And she came in my room the next morning and she was crying. And she was like, Dad, this poem is really special. Thank you so much for writing it. I'm sorry I'm doing this to you, but I'm still going on a date. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Did you feel that you had to kind of revisit some conversations with your daughters to, to work on this project? No. Mm. Well, the oldest daughter and I are still trying to find our way back to each other. The 14-year-old, she saw the book sitting on the counter, and she's like, oh, a new book. Like, she doesn't think I'm cool or, you know. All her friends are, like, one of her friends has my picture as a screensaver. And she, like, her friends are like, oh, my gosh, your dad is Kwame. She's like, no. So, <laughs> if you're recording, please don't post that clip. <laughs> I will hear about it. But she saw the book on the counter, and she was like, yeah, Dad, your book. And she's like, is this the memoir? I said, yeah. She said, Dad, that is so cool. We're studying memoir in class right now. How cool would it be if I read your memoir to do a report on it? She said, it'd be really cool, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so um, I didn't talk to them. But again, I learned a lot about how I father and trying to figure out how to father in a way that serves them and serves me better. And so one of the things, another thing I learned is listening. And I haven't been the best listener to my kid. And so I've been trying to like really listen. So recently, when she gets punished or something happens and she gets mad and she goes in the room, my immediate thing to do is something my mother did when I got upset or when I got punished and had to go to my room. My mother would come in my room, because I'd be in my room, oh, I hate her so much. My mother would come in and immediately do something that would make me laugh. Mm -hmm. And so her favorite thing was to recite some sort of story or poem. She recited a Langston Hughes poem. Folks, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so why not get yourself a little loving in between? <laughs> and then she'd walk out the room and I couldn't help but laugh, and she knew it was going to get me out of my funk. So I do that with my daughter. And so recently she said, Dad, can you come here for a second? And I said, yeah. She said, you know what? Sometimes it's OK to just be angry for a minute. I was like, oh, snap, you're right. I don't have to be smiling and happy and laughing all the time. Sometimes I don't feel like that. I'm still listening and learning so much as a parent, as a father, and I'm, I'm more aware and alert and conscious of it now. I'm not just sort of moving through life. I'm, I'm more intentional now, I think. I'd love to hear you read a little bit more of your poetry. I think everyone would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll share this piece. This was um, in this country or in our lives when we, talk, when we talk about divorce, 
in our families, oftentimes the narrative is something that's pretty negative. It's like we, we focus on the end, on that moment, that, the divorce. And, you know, I remember talking to, to Steph and saying, well, look, the marriage may be ending, but the family doesn't have to be. And so how do we do that? And so we first had to decide that that was important because as my daughter will remind me, I didn't ask to be brought here. Y'all made me. <laughs> and so if, if, that's, if you're our responsibility, then let's figure out a way for, for us to still have some semblance of a family for her. And once we sort of both got on that page, then it was just like negotiation and figuring out how we're going to do that in a way that is meaningful and authentic. Once I figured out this was a memoir, one of the reasons that I began to sort of really delve deep into it is because I wanted my, my daughters to know that the divorce isn't the narrative, that, the only narrative. Like, this is how I loved your mothers. This is, this is where you came from. You didn't come out of a divorce. You came out of this. This is how we made you. In the future, when you're newly married and the two of you are half hanging off your bed, fingers playing in each other's locks, your legs braided, loud garbage trucks beeping outdoors, no whining children yet to cook for, and you're talking about leaving your job or whose family to visit for Christmas or how lucky you are to be loved like this or whatever it is you talk about after making love in the early morning, I want you to know that before our uncoupling, your mother and I used to work the door at a jazz club in Washington, D.C. And every Thursday night, we'd stand at the entrance collecting covers, greeting friends and regulars, feeding each other jerk wings, kissing the hot sauce from our lips, joking and laughing about this and that, holding each other when it got chilly, and later, when we'd get back to our one-room apartment on the other side of the 14th Street Bridge, we'd spread the money out on the bed, count our hall, smile if we could pay the rent, worry if we couldn't, and then we'd make our own music. And without fail, without fail, the woman next door would bang on the walls <laughs> and tell us to turn it down, but we wouldn't because we couldn't, because we knew how lucky we were to be loved like that. Amazing. Uh, all right, I think that's, we have time for some questions or comments from the audience. Yes. I'm an adjunct professor at Lewis and Clark College of Wright. And um, every year in the summer, we read your uh, poem, Jane C. Making on the floor. And I love reading it. I read it at the end of the class um, because we've written and that's what the class is about, writing. And you talk about, you know, write a poem, say something. It don't, it don't have to rhyme, but you got to write something. You have to say something. It's um, always so compelling. And it feels like with Why Fathers Cry at Night, you did that. Um, and I'm sensing the vulnerability and the openness. And I think 
Um, Chef, you already alluded to it, but it's refreshing, but I also sometimes feel a little scared for you as a black woman being that vulnerable in space as a black man. And how do you um, overcome that? Is that work that's been done already where you're just like, look, this is it, it's out there. Um, but I just feel like we got something really precious tonight. You seem so open to sharing your journey about horror sexuality, all of it, fatherhood, these things that as humans we're connecting with. So, is that hard for you to do right now, or? I mean, it is now after hearing you describe it like that. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't say that in the beginning. <laughs> is that what just happened? <laughs> what? Um, no, seriously though, it, it, I have seen the changes in my life. I've seen like how my father and I have had some real conversations. I've seen my siblings and I in the same space together for all four of us twice in the past two months, which is the first time we've all been together since childhood, since I left for college. I've seen that. I've seen the results of writing, of, 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 of putting it down. And so all the fear and the worry that's real, you described it perfectly. I know the value of it. So I just don't think about what you just said a whole lot, but it's there. I just keep moving in this direction because I see the impact it's having on my life and I like that. But it's hard and it's hurtful too. My father called me, he said, I read your little memoir. Mm. <laughs> he said, tell your publisher I'm suing for defamation of character. You know, so, so I've seen, I've, if I had known I was gonna do this, I would not have done it. Thank God I did not know. Mm. Did you have a question? You mentioned earlier about being essentially called out by your friends and your, you know, social stuff. Thanks for reminding me. I'm not even this book. So it's a good thing that you're still just putting yourself out there. I guess if you could go back to yourself, you know, like, mm -hmm. how can you call yourself out? I appreciate that question. I can just share some of the things that I would have said to myself. I would have said, Dude, check her, check him. Don't just stand by and let them do this or say this and not respond. You care about this person. Part of them being in your life and you being a friend who cares about them is you have responsibility to check them. I would say, um, you gotta push back. If you don't agree with something your wife is saying, you gotta push back, Kwame. Don't stay in this space where, as a child, you saw your parents argue all the time, and you saw your dad raise his voice so much that you made a decision you are never going to argue. Kwame, you do not wanna be married for 23 years and have, never have an argument with your wife. I know it sounds real cool, 
But if you don't push back, if you don't say what's on your mind, if you don't speak up for the things you care about, you're going to find yourself in a situation where she's not going to know you and you're not going to know her. People will survive your truth, Kwame. If, if you want somebody to be a friend to you, to trust you, you got to be a friend to them. And you got to let, you got to trust yourself enough to let them in. I would say that kind of stuff to myself. Did we have a question on this one? Yes. Going back to Dickie Giovanni, I listened to you in the podcast interview, and you had a story about Dickie Giovanni from when she was a visiting professor in New York City. Would you mind telling that story, please? I don't want to tell the whole story because it's in the book, but I'll speak to the spirit of the story. And that is that. In college, Nikki Giovanni gave me C's. I did not like getting C's. <laughs> I took three of her classes, Advanced Poetry, Introduction to Black Studies, Black Studies and Children's Literature 101. I got C's in all of them, a C minus in one of them. That was in 1987, 88, and 89. In 13, I think, or 11, her mom passed away. So that would have been like 26 years after Virginia Tech, I think. I'm not good with the math, y'all. And she called me and she said, Kwame, I need you to come over to my house. She lived four hours away so we can drink beer to celebrate my mom. Her mom drank a lot, her mom drank beer. So Nikki wanted to buy the most expensive beer in the world to celebrate her mom, which is called Utopias. It's like $200 a bottle. I don't drink beer. I was like, all right, we celebrate your mom. So we have this moment together. We're eating Brussels sprouts, au gratin, potatoes, grilled tuna at her dining room table. Okay, so that's 2011, 2013. 2017, I'm in Vancouver, Washington. I'm getting back from a Disney cruise with my kid. And I get a call. My dad says, you got to come home. Your mom is not doing well. I fly back to DC. I drive to Virginia Beach. I get to her house. She lives a block away from my dad. They marry, but they can't live together. Whatever works, right? And I get to her house, her apartment building and there's an ambulance outside and my sisters and my dad are arguing and the, the EMT says you can get in the back of the ambulance my mother's in there she's smiling she's like I'm gonna be all right I want you to be with me in the hospital yada 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 I go to the hospital um, I have a book that's due it's called rebound it's been due for about nine months and I haven't turned it in. I've missed deadlines. And so I'm determined that I'm going to finish this book by September 1st. That was my plan. So I'm in her hospital room. She's relaxing. I'm working on the book because I got five days to finish it. The next day, she's watching TV. She's eating. They're running tests. I'm working on the book because it's due in four days. The next day, her brother comes. 
She, 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 I, I remember them holding hands and her telling him she's going to be okay. It's in God's hands. I'm working on the book because it's due in three days. The next day, she has a stroke. And so I got to feed her. And she's, she's resting. And I got two days until the book is due. And my agent's like, you don't got to finish the book. Just focus on your mom. And I've, I'm, I'm still writing. And the next day, the doctor says, we can't do anything about her. We can't do anything for her. Do you want to take her home? Do you want to keep her on the breathing machine? What would you like to do? I grab her hand and I say, squeeze my hand once if you want to go home. And she squeezes it. And so the next day, my sisters come to the hospital. I finish the book. The book is called Rebound. It's about a boy whose father dies and he's got to figure out how to rebound from that loss. And we take my mom home at 3.30, and at 8.30 she dies. And I call Nikki, and I say, my mom passed. And she says, let me know when the funeral is, I'll be there. And I'm not gonna let her know because Nikki doesn't really go to funerals. And so the funeral's on a Friday. On Thursday, she calls me. She says, Kwame, I'm in, the hotel. I'm in the hotel. I'll see you at the service tomorrow. And I say, what do you mean? You didn't have to come. And she, 30 years after Virginia Tech, with this visiting professor who gave me C's, who I didn't think liked me, who I didn't like, how we got from that point to this point with, her, with me telling her, you, don't, you didn't have to be here, and her saying to me, why the F would I not be here? You need to know you still have a mother. Thank you so much. That was Kwame Alexander discussing his new memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, with Portland cookbook author and chef Gregory Gorday. This event was recorded in front of a live audience at Powell's Bookstore in downtown Portland on May 30th, 2023. Learn about upcoming events at powells.com slash events. Thank you to Sarah Grace McCandless and to Jeremy Garber at Powell's for their help with this event. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show wouldn't be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.